This is My Rain Gauge is Busted, a podcast produced by Agriculture Victoria. I'm Ethan, and here we talk about all things climate and farming. In this episode, Gemma and I talk to seasonal risk agronomist Dale Gray about the fast break table, which is a tool he created when he was asked the question, wouldn't it be great to have an A4 table that summarised predictions from multiple models in one place? Dale took up the challenge and is now not only producing the fast break table for Victoria, but also South Australia, Southern New South Wales and Tasmania. Now I promise if you have never seen the table, this episode is still for you. There are many different seasonal outlook models around the world and it is advantageous to know about them. As Dale explains, it's all about the vibe of multiple models rather than picking a winner. But first, what are the different model types out there and what can they tell us? The first are the couple global circulation models or the CGCMs in the lingo. And these are the big computer models. These are the computers that take up the basement of a large high story building somewhere in the capitals of the world. You know, they're millions of lines of computer code and they are modeling the world on a grid in three dimensions, both up into the atmosphere and down into the ocean and spatially across the world using mathematics to obey the laws of physics in terms of heat and moisture and wind transfer, just one box talking to the box next door to it and the wind goes here and the moisture goes somewhere else. So they're the, they're the CGCMs. Uh, then we have what are called the ensembles and they are groups of CGCMs, groups of uh, coupled models. What it's been found is that you can group a number of climate models together and get a potentially better forecast than just trying to pick the very best model. And the reason for that is that by clumping a number of models together and averaging them, you sort of remove some of the outliers. If one's sort of, you know, crazily dry or one's crazily wet, it kind of gets ignored and you get a sort of a more balanced forecast uh, from the ensemble. So uh, some of the ensembles we've got there are the APEC one, which is a Pacific community one, which includes models from Australia and Japan and Korea and over in the US. And then we have a European ensemble that includes a lot of the models from the UK Met Office and France and Germany and Italy. Uh, And then we have a North American ensemble, which includes a lot of uh, climate models from the research institutes in both Canada and uh, and the US of A. The last one we have is we just have one example of that as a statistical model. I quite irreverently call these the sort of... uh, back of the envelope calculations, they're far from that. They're much more complex than that. But they're basically looking at a uh, reading of something, uh, let's say, for instance, sea surface temperature, and they have correlated or made statistical assessments of how that sea surface temperature has affected rainfall in a particular spot. So Australia, for instance. So you look at a pattern of sea surface temperature, and when it's looked like this, the rainfall has looked like that. And when it's looked like something else, the rainfall is different and changed. Uh, so the one that we do is the um, Queensland SOI phase system where we're looking at the two months of the Southern Oscillation Index, whether it's going up or down or strongly positive or strongly negative or or sitting there doing nothing at neutral and how that's affected the rainfall over time. So it's, it's just a simple single factor comparison between a couple of months of the Southern Oscillation Index and how that's affected rainfall historically. So there's been some sort of conjecture, I suppose, as to whether the statistical models are actually 
valid anymore. And we certainly saw that with the old Bureau of Meteorology statistical forecast, um, which was based on sea surface temperatures in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. And the problem is that since that model was developed in the late 80s, the physical ocean temperatures have changed what seems to be permanently out there. And so the old statistical arrangement between sea surface temperature and rainfall no longer held when you did those forecasts um, for Australia, and particularly when they're looking at the temperature forecasts, actual physical temperature for the landmass that was nearly always predicting that to be really warm because the oceans around Australia were warmer than when they first did that first arrangement. These are the three different types of models, but the real question is why look at individual models if ensemble models aggregate multiple models into one? So the good thing about the global climate models is that they actually don't care about history. They don't care what did happen 20 or 30 years ago. They're just looking at right now, the temperature is X, the pressure is Y, the relative humidity is Z, and that means the world's climate and the weather will do something. So they're much more able to react to changes in the climate like we see because they have that sort of stuff, just the mathematics is just factored in. Perhaps the disadvantage with the ensemble models is that they do provide just a dumb average of six to eight models. And so sometimes you lose that, you know, the granularity where a particular model might be showing a nice rain shadow effect that, you know, south of the divide looks wetter, but north of the divide, there's no kind of signal. And you might see three or four sort of coupled models that might show that up. But when you put 10 of them together in ensemble, you might lose that. So it's usually the individual models sometimes that can give you some better resolution or tell you perhaps some more information about a particular rainfall outcome that might get lost in the ensemble. Of course, the other thing is that if the ensembles are all over the shop, well, they're just going to come out with a forecast of neutral. Anything could happen and may not tell you much at all, whereas individual models might at least tell you where that signal is coming from. Like you might be able to pick, well, where are the wetter ones? Where are the drier ones? And, and then you might be putting some bias on those from your own experience as to which model you might be believing a bit more. But, you know, the reality is if a, if a model is coming up with a neutral forecast, it's not telling you a lot in terms of what might happen because the model's been run many, many times and, and that's come out with very equal chances of wetter, average and drier. Of all the coupled global circulation models, they can be further broken down into operational and experimental models. So our fast break table is made up of two different types of forecast products. And the first of those are what we call the operational models. And they are generally run and owned by the major meteorological agencies in a country. So for instance, that's um, NSEP in America. It's the UK Med Office in, in the United Kingdom. It's the access model from the Bureau of Meteorology in Australia. Uh, and they are putting out official forecasts for their countries and because these are global climate models, they're putting out a forecast for the United Kingdom, but the whole world's running as well. So, you know, we get to look at the forecast for anywhere in the world, really. We're looking at southeastern Australia when we look at them. The other type of model we have are the experimental models, and, and they're the ones that are made by research agencies around the world, often universities. So we have someone like NASA not an official product from the US, but nonetheless a very well-respected research agency. Um, the other model we have from Japan, from Jamstech, is from a university. 
from memory, I think there's a couple of other experimental ones as well. So it's really just a delineation between one's putting out a forecast and they're being kind and putting up on their website so the rest of the world can look at it. But it's certainly not an official forecast, which is what those ones are that are coming from the official forecast from meta agencies from around the world. One of the key things that confuses people is the difference between a probabilistic and a deterministic forecast. Out of the 12 models that I look at, when you go and look at their website, they present their forecasts in two different ways and some of them present them in both and they're either probabilistic or deterministic. Probably easiest to start with the deterministic first. The models run 50, 100, maybe more times and all the answers for every grid point for rainfall are averaged out and that is the deterministic forecast. It's the average of a large number of model runs, which is different to a weather forecast. A weather forecast is a deterministic model. The forecast is run once and that's the forecast. That's it. There's no other answer. It's just what the model says. But if you run those models often enough, which the medium-term climate models are, and you average them all out, well, you get a big dumb average there, which is the deterministic forecast. And if you know the majority of model runs are wetter, that deterministic forecast will lean towards the wetter. And those deterministic forecasts are nearly always done in an anomaly. How many millimetres less than normal or more than normal is this forecast average providing? And so sometimes those uh, models give you a large anomaly, in which case that's a, probably a higher chance that wetter might be, for instance, or, or drier if it's a large drier anomaly. Often they just give you a bit of a sniff in one direction that there's slightly less rainfall predicted compared to normal or slightly more which doesn't sort of give you a stronger signal that the models are all going in one direction. But what's interesting is that history tells me that often just that slight drift, that sniff towards something looking a bit drier or a bit wetter is often the way it's kind of come out. But the other way we have is the probabilistic one. And uh, it's fair to say the majority of ones that I look at, I try to look at the probabilistic forecast rather than the deterministics where they're available. And the probabilistic one is when, once again, we run our model 100 times, but this time we start binning them into where they fall. So people would be familiar with the Bureau's access forecast that above or below the median forecast. That is a probabilistic one. And they've just been that into two things. How many forecasts fall above the median and how many fall below the median? And then they give you a percentage saying if only 30% are going to be above the median, well, that means uh, 70% are going to be below it. That's a drier sort of forecast sniffing in that direction. But most of the ones that I see have what's called a tercile probabilistic forecast, which is where they've binned all those 100 model runs into one of three sections. And that's either the lowest third of records, the middle third of records, or the wettest third of records. If there's nothing going on and the forecast can't work out what's going on and it's just what historical variability has always been, that comes out 33, 33, 33, a 33% chance of drier normal or average in the middle or wet. But anytime you get something deviating, so a 50% chance of drier, uh, that means 50% of the models are falling into that driest third rather than 33% that would normally, that's a really actually a large increase in the odds of things falling into the dry category. Sometimes a large number of models fall in average. So, you know, that model is actually predicting that average is the most likely outcome. 
Although to be honest, that is that is something that models don't often do. They normally sit on the fence at neutral, 33% chance of anything happening, or they sort of drift drier or they, they drift wetter. But there's, you know, it's interesting. Average is somewhere they don't often want ahead. Neutral is a word that many will have heard when it comes to seasonal forecasts, but it is also one that does trip many people up. It brings us to that concept of a neutral forecast. So that would be the word we would see in the fast break table the most. And particularly in autumn, models will be sitting on the fence at neutral, meaning, as I said, they've run it many times and the model can't see anything in the climate that's pushing it in any direction away from what has always happened, which was a third chance of dry, a third chance of average or a third chance of, of wet. And where we get into trouble, uh, where people get into trouble, is that it's very tempting to think that neutral means average. And I, I cannot be at any greater pains to explain that that is not the case. Average means average. Um, average would mean average in a deterministic forecast if it came out showing that there was no anomaly either way. You know, the average of all that deterministic model was that there was no deviation. In a tercile forecast, average would be that the model was run many times and average actually came out as one of the most common model predictions. But as I said, that's not common usually. But moreover, we get what's called the neutral forecast, which is a 33% chance of average, a 33% chance of wetter and a 33% chance of drier. People get frustrated with that, but to be honest, um, if you're a glass half full sort of person, a neutral forecast is at least a 67% chance of it being average or wetter, as opposed to a 33% chance of being drier. So the odds of normality or better with a neutral forecast are running with you. One of the questions that Dale often gets, given his study of different models over such a long time, is, well, which model is the best one then? I've been looking at individual models for some 15 years, every month of those 15 years. So I've seen models come and go and I've seen performance come and go. What people may not know is that at the end of each year, I assess how models have gone for Victoria and looked at each year how, how they've performed. And we provide a little fake award that they don't actually receive, but they do <laughs> for which model has gone the best for the year. And there are some models that have literally never won that award and some that have possibly never come close. And there are others who've won it a couple of times and pretty been mixed performance, I suppose, that, you know, it's often a bit of a, a different model gets up. But there's usually a clump of them that are what you'd call the front runners, I suppose. And our, our own Bureau of Meteorology, the Access model, has has done well in its predecessor, the old POAMA model. We have the UK Met Office from which the Access model is derived from that's also done well. So is the ECMWF model. Uh, interestingly enough, the, the SOI phase system, the statistical model, has not been disgraced in a few years, particularly when there's a, you know an El Nino or a La Nina event on the go, or particularly a strong one. The Chinese model is one as well. So there's kind of a suite of 12 models there. I've named about five or so, but by difference, you can guess that the others haven't actually won much at all. So the reality is that any model could be having a bad year. And the worst thing that could happen is that you're looking at your favorite model and it's saying something radically different to what the other nine are doing. 
And you'd have to be a very brave person to be saying, you know, I think my favourite model's got it right and the other nine have got no idea. They're, they must be dreaming. It's more likely that the other, the other nine are seeing something that your model's not seeing. So I always look for consensus rather than just picking one model and going with that. I'm looking to see what other models are saying to see if they're seeing the same sort of things and predicting similar things. With all this work to look at the different models monthly to create the fast-baked table, what gives Dale confidence when looking at the predictions? When models are run, they give particular answers and sometimes those predictions are plausible. They line up with multiple lines of evidence around in the world and you can look at what that model's predicting and go, I can see where that model has pulled that prediction from. And there are other times where you see a prediction and you go, I have no idea where that model has pulled that prediction from. It just seems to be coming out of thin air. Now, of course not, but what's causing that model to go that way is not blatantly obvious in many of the other sort of signals that we look at. So I think what's interesting is if models are predicting an El Nino, often you'll be seeing a signal particularly in the undersea of the Pacific Ocean. You'll be seeing you know, if you look in the undersea of the Pacific, you'll be seeing warming underneath there and you can go, well, I can clearly see that if the trade winds reverse, that warming might pop up and form an El Nino. You instantly go, well, that's a plausible outcome. That actually could happen. However, if it's, you know, really cold under the Pacific and models are predicting an El Nino in three months, likewise, you kind of go, well, things would have to change dramatically from the way they look there at the moment for that to go in that particular direction. So that's when it comes to a particular climate driver. But when it comes to predictions of, of wetter or drier forecasts, likewise, you're also looking for lines of evidence for what might be going on. So if a model's predicting wetter, and there's currently an Indian Ocean dipole negative in existence, automatically you'd link those two statistically and go, well, that means there's an increased chance of weather. That's a plausible outcome. That's a plausible forecast to be coming out there. But then you start looking, well, what's going on around Australia atmospherically? What's the pressure doing in the tropics? Is it lower up that way? Is the pressure lower over Victoria? Does that mean we're better able to bring moisture down? Because if that's the case, that's a plausible answer for something could be leading to wetter as well. Is there an abundance of cloud to the north of Australia? Or if in the case of a negative IOD, is there an abundance of cloud coming off the island of Sumatra? Does that mean even though we have a negative IOD, is it coupled with the atmosphere above it? Is the atmosphere doing the right thing? Have the trade winds, are they blowing strongly in towards Indonesia? So you have these different lines of evidence that come together to give you confidence that this forecast is probably going to be coming out right, or it's got a stronger chance of coming out. I believe what it's saying could actually happen because of all these other things I can see. As opposed to a forecast for drier, because there's an El Nino, but the SOI, the pressure is normal, the cloud is normal to the north of Australia and over the international date line, kind of indicating that if it's an El Nino, it's uncoupled. It's not, you know, the ocean's not talking to the atmosphere yet. This model thinks it's going to, but till the climate driver starts to couple from the atmosphere, it makes it harder to believe that the forecast 
might be right in the future. So once again, you're looking for lines of evidence that line up confirming the forecast to what you would expect to see for that forecast to come through. Of course, models are not much chop at predicting out to four and six months because that's so far away that anything potentially could happen. And if a model is predicting something four to six months out, well, the reality is you won't see anything in the current climate probably to link that signal through. And so um, predictions that far out are often, well, they're not much more than crystal ball gazing often. We greatly appreciate Dale's willingness to spend time with us in this episode to take us through some of those tricky definitions and to allow us to better understand what is involved in creating the fast break table. With your new skills, you should go and test them out by reading the fast break table and checking out the different models. You can find links to all those things in the show notes. You can also get in contact with us at the.break at agriculture.vic.gov.au. See you next time. O-S-O-I-N-S-S-T And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date, get the break. Oh, this bloke Dale, he's a ridgy dude. He knows about the subtropical ridge. The science comes in a secret code. But he knows about the southern annular mode. Well, this SST anomaly lead us to a decile of 1, 2, 3. The Nino 3 and Nino 3.4. Well, I've never heard of these terms before about SOINSSTs. And what on earth is an IOD? Can someone please explain to me? Stay up to date and get the break. Or keep your eyes out for Enso. Will it rain then? If so, when so? The farmers need you to be specific. What's happening out in the Pacific? The westerly wind bursts blow away. All our hopes of that rainy day. And will this year bring an El Nino? Come on, tell us, Dale. Because we have to know about SOIs and SSDs. Thank you for listening to My Rain Gauge is Busted. For more episodes in this series, find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear your feedback, so please leave a comment or rating and share this series with your friends and family. All information is accurate at the time of release. Contact Agriculture Victoria or your consultant before making any changes on farm. This podcast was developed by Agriculture Victoria.